You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. And so whether you agree with Keynes or the author there or not, uh, we are definitely not in a 15-hour workweek culture in North America. And work plays a predominant role in all of our lives, whether you're studying towards a career and a vocation, whether you're in the middle of it right now, whether you wish you were in some other kind of job or work, it occupies a lot of our lives, not just time-wise, but energy and capacity to think about and navigate and find purpose and meaning through it. And so Ecclesiastes talks about work and captures both the toil and the joy, the highs and the lows, the successes and the failures that you and I will experience in our working lives. And so we're going to turn today and look at the wisdom of Ecclesiastes as it speaks to life under the sun. So uh, just as a way of reminder, Lucas kicks us off last week with some really helpful ways to think about or interpret this book and read it. You can't just read it like you would read the Gospels. You can't just read it like you'd read the Psalm. It really takes a different kind of approach to hear what the biblical author is wanting us to get out of it. And so the wisdom literature in Scripture, there's three books in the Bible that fall under what's called the wisdom literature. It's the book of Job. It's Proverbs and it's Ecclesiastes, and all are very different. But wisdom literature is meant to ask one question. How do you and I live well in this world? Or another way to say it, what does it mean to live well in this world? What does it mean to live well in this world? And it's probably something that we all desire. We all desire to live a full, meaningful life, but yet the unpredictability of life often Uh, leaves us wondering why things happen the way they do, why things have turned out the way they do in your life and other people's lives. And so Ecclesiastes offers wisdom to us for these conundrums of life that you and I have encountered or will encounter, but it does so in a very unusual way. Um, Right at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, it says this, the words of the wise are like goads. And so there are two voices in Ecclesiastes. One is the author. He introduces, ourselves in the, he introduces himself in the first verse, and then it's like he's introducing the TED Talk speaker. And now I'm going to turn it over to this person called the teacher. And for the rest of the book, we hear from the teacher. And he's kind of grumpy. He's kind of cynical. He's kind of looks at life. And he's got a bit of a chip on his shoulder. That's the tone of Ecclesiastes, and we hear it come through and through. And then right at the end, the author gets back up. Thank you so much for your TED Talk. You may sit down. And then he kind of brings us back from the edge <laughs> that the author, that the teacher's almost taken us over, and he brings some conclusion to it. And part of that, he says this, the words of the wise like goads. What's a goad? A goad is like a sharp-pointed stick that was used to prod cattle. And so what he's saying is this wisdom is designed to provoke you and I to think about, am I living life well? Not according to social media, not according to Instagram, not according to this influence. Or that. Am I living life well as designed by the creator of life under the sun? And so Lucas phrased it like this, Ecclesiastes invites you into a controlled crisis, like a hypothetical crisis that we can push ourselves to think and be prodded and provoked through the voice of the teacher. And so the teacher is examining and he's searching out and he's exploring all the ways that you and I try to find meaning and purpose uh, under the sun without God. And then he deconstructs every single 
one of them. And so deconstruction um, has become a buzzword in the last few years. You see a lot of people, uh, particularly in Christian circles or evangelical Christian circles, where people begin to deconstruct and challenge their faith and basically come to a point where they deconvert sometimes. And that's not the deconstruction. That, that's uh, unhelpful deconstruction. But there's also deconstruction that's incredibly helpful, incredibly necessary if you and I want to build a robust faith, certainly a faith that can handle the complexity of real life. Um, here's a, a quote that's something I read um, that I think really helps frame a good way to think about a healthy form of deconstruction. And it says it like this. Uh, the ph uh, philosopher Paul Ricoeur coined a phrase, the second naivete, or naivety, however you pronounce it, that is appropriate. There is a childish, uncritical first naivete, Ricoeur says, that we need to outgrow. To move beyond it, we must question our assumptions, dissect them, and take them apart. In doing so, we realize how naive we were and how complex things are. But the purpose of this deconstruction stage is not to leave us tentative, unsure about everything. Ultimately, it should lead us to what's called a second naivete, an understanding arrived at on the far side of complexity, which is truly childlike as opposed to childish. And so what is he saying there? And he actually goes on and uses a great example. In the 4th and 5th century, there was about four councils where the church leaders got together, and they would talk about different things, and their faith was forming. And over a period of about 125 years, and four councils later, they were talking about specifically the person of Jesus Christ. How do we make sense of him? And some were saying uh, he was God. God would never be a man. He was a divine being. He was like an angel on the earth. It's disrespectful to think of him as a man. And so there was people in that camp. There was people over here, absolutely not. He was a man. He was anointed. He wasn't God. God, you know, and that kind of thing. And so they would go back and forth, back and forth, and everything else in between. And so when the whole church affirmed the definitive Chalcedonian Creed in 451 AD, four councils later, 125 years later, the person of Christ could be summed up in one simple sentence. Jesus Christ is truly God, truly human, and truly one. That simplicity on the far side of complexity. And that's what we need to have in our faith, is we want to move from a simplistic view of the world encounter all the complexity of life, and then come out of it with a complex simplicity, if you will. So to move from a childish faith, wrestle with some tough questions or crises or real-life experiences that challenge the way that you and I think, and come out on the other side with a complex simplicity. It's like if you're coming to university, maybe you grew up in a small town, and maybe you have a very simplistic way, and your faith was told a very simplistic way. And all of a sudden, you're around people who maybe mock your faith or challenge your faith. And you begin to ask questions. Well, what, why, what do I really believe about that? And, and why do I believe that? Is it just because my mom and dad told me or my pastor back home told me like that? That's a good deconstruction that hopefully gets you to a place of wrestling through it and having answers for those questions on the other side of complexity. So... Let's dive in to deconstructing work under the sun. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 22, 23 asks the question that we're asking today. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is heavy. 
does that describe your work week or your study week this last week? <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's, that's my journal entry right there from Wednesday. Um, and so there's two things in the italicized in that, and that, that's really important to understand in this book. The first one is this word hevel. And this is used 38 times throughout the book, and it's a really important way. And basically, the teacher is saying is everything that you do, everything that you try to attempt, it's all hevel. Now, in some of your translations, it's translated meaningless. Um, I, I and other biblical scholars think that's such a very poor translation because life isn't meaningless. It's just frustrating and absurd sometimes. And so hevel literally just means vapor or smoke, and it's a metaphor for how you can see smoke, right? But have you ever tried to grab it? And it's like, I can see it. It's right there in front of me. And I try to go, and it's like, there's no substance. And it's transient. It's, right, it's there now, and then it's gone later. And so Hevel is a metaphor for, the, for life sometimes. It's, it's, we can see it all around us, but sometimes we try to get it. The substance is not there. It's transient. It's Hevel. And the second thing is everything is under the sun. And this is really important because the teacher is looking at life purely and only from a closed system of under the sun. No God, no nothing, no external interest, just life under the sun from an earthly purity, uh, limiting himself to an earthly perspective. And so those are two very important things as we go through this series in this uh, book. Given we will spend about a third of our lives working, um, it's a worthwhile question to ask. What is the point? What's the point of work? And so very quickly, um, I want to look at four views that uh, the teacher in Ecclesiastes uh, gives us for view of work and success under the sun. They're not very flattering, so stay locked in, but stay all the way to the end of the service. It's going to get good news, right? We're going to get there. But let's wade through some complexity. You ready? Let's leave some childish thinking behind and wade through some complexity and trust God to give us a childlike faith on the other side. Chapter 4, verse 1 to 3, it says, Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who had never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. I mean, this guy is a party pooper. I mean, it's like, have you ever gone to coffee with someone like this? And it's like, woe is me, everything is terrible, life is meaningless. It's like, whoa, dude. Um, but he's provoking, he's prodding, he's goading us. He's provoking you. And so number one, very extreme look, for large parts of our planet, large parts of our world, work is oppressive. Work can be viewed as oppressive. Uh, we know in, in a lot of developing nations, um, there's still things like sweatshops, there's still forced labor, there's still labor exploitation. And so we see systems of exploitation still in our day, in our age, um, around the world. Um, maybe getting closer to home, maybe um, less in developing worlds, but in the developed worlds, we still see systems of inequality. Sure, we're not communists, we're not socialists, but capitalism has its own flaws. Uh, there's a power, the haves, and the powerless, the have-nots. Um, here's a stat. This year, the world's 500 richest people collectively added $852 billion to their fortune during the first half of 2023. That's an average of $14 million a day for each. In 1965, the CEO to worker ratio, so what the CEO earned compared to the average worker in that company was 20 to one. In 1989, it was 60 to one. Today, it's close to 400 
to one. That's a flawed system of inequality where a small, a very small percentage of the world gets exorbitantly rich at the hard work and expense of a whole lot of other people. So work is oppressive. We, we're in these systems and we look and we get disillusioned and everyone wants to be that person, wants to be that CEO. The reality in life, it's like, but the, what is the, it's like a lottery. It's like, it's, unless you're a unicorn, the reality is the majority of us are never going to attain to that. And so where the narrative is like, you could be the next Mark Zuckerberg, you could be the next Bill Gates, the Steve Jobs. That's really not true. <laughs> and so uh, the teacher's goading us. Um, these systems are oppressive. And then lastly, just maybe in your workplace and our workplace, as we emerged from the pandemic, we heard things about the great resignation, quiet quitting. And what was that about? Is people realizing, in my workplace, I'm not valued. I feel disconnected to the purpose. I'm not getting paid what I think I should be getting paid. I'm not incentivized to grow. And so work is an oppression if you're stuck in a system like that. It's like, this is just, it's just a dead-end job for me. It's paying bills. Is that what it's about. This feels like hevel. Number two, work as self-inflicted suffering. Maybe those are systems that are really hard for you and I to change. That we're in that and we feel powerless to change. But oftentimes, we inflict suffering on ourselves. Work as self-inflicted suffering. Verse four, he continues on and he says, and I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is hevel, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. And so how do we uh, inflict suffering ourselves? Either through overwork or underwork. Overwork and we have misguided ambitions. A lot of times we're driven to succeed because we want to keep up with the competition. We're driven to succeed because we don't want to lose out. We're driven to succeed because we want to keep up with the lifestyle that we see around us or what people are chasing, and we get caught up with that. And so our ambition drives us, our competitiveness, our envy drives us, and we overwork, and the consequence of that can be very dire. And then on the opposite side, it says, but then we can also be very lazy. And if we're lazy, if we underwork, it leads to our self-destruction. It ruins us. And so both underwork and overwork rob us of really enjoying God and the gift that he has for us through work and dehumanize us in many ways. And so in a very brief moment of optimism, the teacher actually offers something quite helpful. He talks about balance. He says, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. And he says, you know what? Don't work so hard. Work. Don't be lazy, but don't work so hard. Better to have one handful and two handfuls of work. Better to have one handful of tranquility, peace, modest demands, but some inward peace, than, man, you got your demanding job, two handfuls of toil that don't give you any rest, any peace. It's a very hard message for us to embrace, particularly in our North American context, right? Be ambitious, but not too ambitious. <laughs> work, but not too hard. It's like, it's like blasphemy almost. But in a rare moment, he's maybe has maybe he's onto something here. Like it's it's not good to overwork, it's not good to underwork. Somewhere in the middle there is a happy medium, which is very elusive to almost all of us. This is evil. <laughs> Sounds like devil as well, right? This is evil. Um, and one of the reasons why this seems so elusive for us is because you work in industries, you work in companies, you work around people 
that you know if you're not prepared to do over and above what's expected, there are 10 people waiting in line to take your place. And that's challenging. And that's challenging. That's a system of oppression. It doesn't encourage life balance. It's, it pushes people. Um, maybe that's changing a little bit through the pandemic. We saw that. People wanting a bit more of a work-life balance. But it's, it's amazing how quickly we're kind of going back to optimization, acceleration, growth. It's all about more and being more successful. This is Hevel. So those are two really extreme versions of work as being really oppressive, suffering. But then what happens for a lot of people, those who realize their ambitions through work, um, the teacher says, well, even the resulting success and wealth can prove problematic. So let's look at that. Number three, I'll call this work as seductive. In the pursuit of success and wealth, even those who achieve their goals through hard work may face problems. Chapter 5, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is hevel. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. It was the modern-day prophet I think it was Notorious B.I.G. who said it best. More money? There we go. More problems. And sometimes we've been told, like, wealth is the key to a happy life. Now, I think wealth can be better than not having your needs met. But be very careful because what the teacher's prodding and provoking us is, is success has its own harmful things. And... He's saying that oftentimes, not all, this is, these are generalized statements because you know as well that there's some people who are wealthy and you know, they're, they're not lovers of money and that kind of thing, but he is pointing out something that be very careful. Like success and wealth has its own seduction, harmful seduction. Um, psychologists call it the hedonic treadmill, that the more you get, actually the more you want. And what, what gave you um, satisfaction before, you need more to get back to that level of satisfaction. And uh, was it, I forget which one of the, uh, one of the richest guys in America, was it, um, I forget what he says, but they, they were interviewed him, it was way back. And, uh, and they asked him, like, when is enough is enough? And he it was always like, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. And that's the hedonic treadmill that you can get. And so abundance can actually rob you. It can be a thief stealing peace and tranquility from your life, sleep even from your life. And so money changes us, but money also changes others. <laughs> it's like he says, you know, as goods increase, so are those who consume them. Money attracts people. Success attracts people. And you may begin to look at them through a lens of distrust. Why are they all of a sudden coming to me? Do they just want what I have? And so we can begin to learn to distrust or mistrust other people's motives, fearful of their motives. And so money can change the way that we look at people and value people. Money can also repel people. Uh, success can also repel people. So again, money changes us. Money can change others. Be careful of the seduction of work as a means towards wealth and success. It has its own problems. And then lastly, success is unsatisfying. Uh, chapter 6 says it like this. I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and strangers enjoy them instead. This is heaven. 
a grievous evil. And so for the very few people who get their heart's desire, could imagine right now you got your heart's desire, but you couldn't enjoy it. That's hevel. You get everything that you could possibly want, fame, riches, fortunes, power, whatever it is, but for whatever reason, you're just not satisfied. You can't. It's not it. Um, does everyone know who Brad Pitt is? I was just checking. I was asking my daughter because I know generationally he was like this mediocre-looking guy back in the day. Okay, he was a very. I was asking my wife and my daughter, "Is this is this guy good-looking?" And like, yeah. I'm like, well, beauty's in the eye of the ball. They're like, Dad, <laughs> good-looking. Brad Pitt, actor, uh, good-looking guy. Years ago, he was in a movie called Fight Club. And after Fight Club came out, um, Rolling Stone, the magazine, interviewed him. And it, this is a very interesting interaction. So I don't have it up here, but just dial in here. It says, this is Brad Pitt speaking to Rolling Stone. He says, I know all these things are supposed to seem important to us. The car, the condo, our version of success. But if that's the case, why is the general feeling out there reflecting more impotence and isolation and desperation and loneliness? And so Rolling Stone pressed him further and says, well, what do we do to avoid this dead end? of dissatisfaction. And he said, I don't have the answers yet. The emphasis now is on success and personal gain. I'm sitting in it. And I'm telling you, that's not it. I'm the guy who's got everything. I know. But I'm telling you, once you've got everything, you're just left with yourself. And so the teacher, the teacher is provoking us. You think you get all your heart's desire, that's it. Your heart is way more complex than you probably realize. Life is complex. Life is complex. This is hevel indeed. So what's the point? You're like, oh my gosh, this is depressing. Why am I coming to this church? (laughs) Stay tuned in. Timothy Keller, we know that name. We love that name. Here's what he has to say. Everything will be forgotten. Nothing we do will make any difference. And all good endeavors... Even the best will come to naught. Wow, sounds like the teacher. Unless there is God. If the God of the Bible exists and there is a true reality beneath and behind this one, and this life is not the only life, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones, pursued in response to God's calling can matter forever. You know, Ecclesiastes is a really important book for us. It's a really important reality check for us. It's in the canon of Scripture. You can't rip it out of your Bible. I mean, you could, but that would be unwise. But it's a part of a much bigger story Scripture is telling us. And so let's zoom out a little bit and get some perspective on what we're supposed to now do with work. Is it just pointless? Should I not pursue success? If I get success, it looks like it's harmful. What am I supposed to do, teacher? And so let's turn now and look at what the bigger story of Scripture invites us into. Here's a really cool, interesting thing that I found out as we were preparing for the series, is that in Jewish tradition, the book of Ecclesiastes was required reading during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, if you're not familiar with any of that, the Feast of Tabernacles is one of three major feasts that the Jewish people celebrate uh, throughout the year. And it's a seven-day celebration, a seven-day party, a seven-day feast that celebrates two things, God's provision, 
for the actual harvest in that time, the actual agricultural harvest, his provision for the crops and everything that was provided through through that. And then for his providence as they recounted the story of how God provided and intervened and cared for them through the Exodus. And if you're unfamiliar with that, it was how they were moved out of slavery under Egyptian rule and into the wilderness and then ultimately into the promised land. And so they had this feast of tabernacles that just celebrated God's goodness, his prosperity, his blessing upon our lives. Oh, and by the way, we're going to read Ecclesiastes while we do all that. And I find that very interesting that the height of celebration, of party, of abundance, of providence, of provision, the teacher is to goad us. And what's the meaning of that? To say all of that is meaningless if it's disconnected from God. All of that is meaningless unless it's connected to the goodness of God. The giver and the gift are connected. The provision and the provider are connected. And so all of that can have incredible meaning and blessing and prosperity in our lives can have um, helpful things for us, not harmful things, if we stay connected to the ultimate reality and the ultimate reality is God. And so we redeem work. We redeem work. We redeem a big chunk of our lives. We redeem it from its hevel by understanding this God behind reality and understanding his design, the dignity he's put in within work, and the destiny that work is pointing out to you. Let's end quickly with that. The design of work. We're made in the image of God. We are image bearers of a God who works, of a God who creates, of a God who cultivates, of a God who stewards and makes, um, makes things better and goodness um, in serving other people. God has made you. He's made us for meaningful work. Work was part of paradise. If you're familiar with the story of the Garden of Eden, work was a part of paradise before the tragedy of the fall. It didn't come as a curse, right? What came is like our work is going to be toil now. Okay, you're not going to get as much production from the ground. It's going to fight you. That's part of the fall. But work is an essential part of the way that you and I participate in God's work in the world. So number one, the design of work. We understand that and we can receive it for what it is supposed to be in our lives as a gift from God. Secondly, the dignity of work. Work is essential for your survival and your flourishing as human beings. It's not just a means to an end. It's not just a means to get money to pay bills. The work itself is essential. That's why unemployment is such a scourge on society. It's so dehumanizing for people to be out of work for long periods of time. It's why your dream of retiring early and lying on a beach for the next 40 years will leave you more miserable. I'm telling you right now, you are made to be a sense of production and dignity with what you do in its balance, not overworking, but certainly also not underworking. And so both overwork and underwork make us less human. So here's what we need to do is you need to embrace your potential, right? That sounds like a modern mantra. Embrace your potential along Bay Street. Embrace your potential. But you know what you also need to do is you need to embrace your limitations. Both your potential and your limitations are essential for you getting the sweet spot for what God's called you to do. And something we don't talk about often, right? No one wants to talk about limitations. We want to bust off limitations, break glass ceilings, all that stuff. And we do it to our detriment. We dehumanize ourselves. We're more anxious. We're more frazzled. We have, we're in the most prosperous, abundant time of, of history. I, I know that for a lot of people that isn't real, but just generally, collectively speaking, we're in one of the most abundant and prosperous times 
in, in the history of the world. And so our anxiety is off the chain, uh, our dissatisfaction with life. And so the third thing is the destiny of work. And this is where Jesus ultimately redeemed. He talked about the ultimate provision and providence of God. It's seen in Jesus, that Jesus enters into our human story, that he enters in and for a large chunk of his life, he worked a job. He was a builder, a contractor, a carpenter. You know, we limit that carpentry just to like wooden stuff. In that time, it was, it was builder. He was, he was blue collar. He was working. What does that speak about? The dignity of all types of work. The creator of the universe steps into humanity and works a job before he then goes into his ministry. And so Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he speaks a long chapter. And it's a chapter that's all about the significance of Jesus, not just his life, not just his death, but his resurrection. And at the end of this, he says this, Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What's the connection between the resurrection and our work? As your work is not hevel, it's not transient, it's not futile, and it's not meaningless. Your life is not hevel. Life is eternal. What you do here matters into this life and the next. Your work will matter, not just here, but into the next life. And so the challenge for you and I is, and part of the challenge, if, if you download the discussion guide from today's message, you discussed it in the small groups, is how can you connect your very specific work, your job? You're a nurse. You're a uh, software engineer. You're a receptionist. You're a homemaker. You're studying uh, whatever it is, engineering, um, you're in the, the medical profession, you're an artist, you're a graphic designer, whatever the, the myriad of specific jobs, you're an architect, you're a landscaper, whatever the specifics of your work or my job or what your studies are taking you towards, can you connect it to God's work? Because if you can do that, you're going to find a fulfillment and work will not be heavy for you although it will have its frustrations and irritations. If you think for one minute Jesus was never frustrated at his job, then I don't think we have an understanding of what it means that Jesus was human. Jesus had frustration at his job, I'm pretty sure, right? Jesus had irritation, I'm sure, sometimes with some customers in his job. Not sinning, but he had some frustration. I'm sure it's normalized that. You get your dream job, great. Normalize frustration in any work. My job has frustration and irritation in it. Being a pastor is full of frustration and irritation. Many times, not many times, sometimes. Don't want, I would, I would love to trade places with, with you. And I'm sure you would love to trade places with this person. We all want to trade places. We all think it's better there. Just Let's just normalize. Yeah, job, even if you enjoy a job, it's going to have times of frustration. It's part of it. Ministry has that. So the destiny of work, connecting your work to the Lord's work. How does your work help create stuff in this world? How is it helping and serving people? How is it bringing order to society? How is it injecting beauty or truth or justice into our world? How is it serving the common good? How is it moving us forward? How is it helping people flourish? If you can begin to see how your bookkeeping job does that, if you can begin to see how your, your desk job does that, it's going to give a level of meaning to your work. N.T. Wright, I'll end with this. What you do in the Lord is not in vain. You're not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that would become in due course 
part of God's new world. Jesus redeems our lives and our work from hell under the sun. And what if work, even the hardest, most difficult, frustrating parts of it, what if it's one of the primary contexts where God wants to do his best work in and through you? Let's pray as we uh, go back into time of response and worship. And so, Father, we are thankful that we don't need to pretend that we can see the complexity, perhaps even the confusion. Uh, we use the word chaos this morning of just sometimes your world, our world feels like. And yet, Lord, you don't want us to shy away. In fact, you have a faith that's so robust it can handle the complexities and the chaos sometimes we see in our world. And, and Jesus, you are the example of you. God's providence and provision for us to make sense, to redeem our lives from sometimes the hevel it seems to be. You redeem our work, whatever it is, the insignificant things that we think, God, you're in it. You're, you're as much there as you, you will be with us as much as you are here right now, tomorrow morning, Monday, when we're on that subway, when we're on, at our desk job, when we're behind the, at the patient's bed, at the, whatever, wherever our work takes us, God, you are there. You are with us. You are wanting us to see how our work is connected to what you're wanting to do in this world of redeeming and restoring and making things work well. And yes, we encounter frustration. Yes, we encounter disillusionment. But I thank you that you would bring us through the complexity to a complex simplicity, a childlike faith that receives the gift of life and work as it is, a gift that stewards it well knowing, God, that it will count. Somehow we're not quite fully sure how at all it will count, not just for this life, but for the life to come. So Jesus, thank you. You're the great rescuer of our souls, the great defender of our souls, the great defender from life and all its heaven. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.